Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. This is In the Landscape. Thank you so much for joining us for another week. I often say in our episodes that it's a Wednesday, but <laughs> you might find us on another day of the week. That's right. Although new episodes should be available every Wednesday on your podcast carrier. We really appreciate you tuning in this week. And we did an episode early on about boxwood, which is one of the species that we have a lot of experience with working in our practice in the Northeastern United States, mm-hmm. other parts of North America, Canada. Today, we thought we would, that's very granular. So not everybody plants boxwood. Not everybody likes boxwood. Boxwood is in trouble in some parts of the world. And so it's not practical to plant it. Although the principles of pruning boxwood might apply to other species, we wanted to kind of step back and take a broader view of the topic of pruning, which is something we do quite a bit in our practice. Mm -hmm. Like you say, open the aperture. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. So you're here with Kate Sadler and I'm with Charles Sadler and we're talking pruning today back to basics. So we thought we'd open the episode with a little bit of information about how Charles began his relationship with pruning as well as how I began my relationship with pruning because I don't come from a gardening or landscape design background and yet I have worked for the company that we run King Garden as a pruning field person (laughs) (laughs) and actually enjoyed it, really enjoyed getting up close and personal with the plants that we've been in contact with. So there was an article that we came across. We were preparing a talk for uh, a specific client and we came across an article entitled The Ethics and Aesthetics of Topiary. And Charles, just briefly before I get into this, how is topiary related to pruning? Is it unique in a way? you describe topiary specifically just a little bit for our listening audience? Topiary, it's more or less the shaping of a plant. So really any plant could be topiary. There's more or less plants that have small leaves are often used because part of the topiary, it's you're shearing it often. And so a large leaf, you had a big giant oak leaf and you sheared it, it's going to be a coarse appearance of the small leaves, which some of the herbs are used. That's very popular where you have a very small pot and there's a, a very thin trunk, and then there's, let's say, a globe on top. So time. So the plants that have small leaves, boxwood are very popular. It could be holly. It's often an evergreen because you're, you're more or less creating this sculptural element in the garden. So it typically requires pruning of some kind. Correct. It's right. almost like a subset of pruning. So pruning is the broad category of cutting plants into a shape or in a way that helps them to grow the way you want them to. Is that correct? Right. So it could be, I guess, big categories would be shaping the plant where there's the goal is to create a certain aesthetic. On the other end of the spectrum would be pruning just for safety and health. So if there's like the categories of, is the branch dead, diseased? Is there an insect problem? Is it rubbing or crossing another branch? So that would be on the very practical end of the spectrum. Then topiary is really you're creating something that has this magical aesthetic appearance. It's sculptural. And we're going to get into many of these topics in greater detail as we go. But the idea is that as we talk about essentially manhandling plants, cutting into (laughs) them and deciding what shape they're going to be, 
there's this interesting concept of, of whether it's ethical to do so. And so we, ha- we came across this article. This is a direct quote. The remaining ethical problem is whether it is permissible to hinder a tree, a tree's goal. I would add shrubs into that category because those are often pruned. We're thinking about living organisms that have the goal of growing in a specific way, thriving in a specific way, reproducing in their way. And we might consider as we're pruning whether we are working with the plant's goals or against the plant's goals. And what might be the the success of our efforts if we don't even understand what the goals of the plant are. Right. I could come back to, like we liked that analogy of human resources. So it's like working with the traits, the characteristics of whether it's a plant or an individual. And if you're not aware of that, if you're blind to that, if you're ignorant of the traits or characteristics, you can have horrible results, basically. And we're often actually called in when things don't go well. And so whether it's a residence or an institution or it's a commercial property, things don't go well. The owners are very disappointed in the appearance. That's like the bread and butter of of some of our practice is educating and then really getting on like like a proper management schedule where things are done at the right time of year in the right way. So that article that I referenced was, again, The Ethics and Aesthetics of Topiary. That was by Isis Brooke and Emily Brady, published in 2003. I'll go ahead and add a link to that in our show notes, but I'm currently doing a doctorate of my own. So the (laughs) concept of citation is so strong. (laughs) We always want to give credit where credit's due. So do check that out because it does bring up some interesting sort of philosophical questions about what we do in the garden. I just wanted to share that. So this idea that It is not one size fits all. I think that's what we sometimes see with Mm -hmm. these properties that have, they've been tended to, you know, there is some maintenance that's taking place, maybe even on an intensive weekly basis, but it is perhaps suited to the goal of the lawn, the grass that's growing in the lawn, that that style of maintenance, but it is not then suited to the goals of the other organisms in the landscape. Right. Like what comes to mind if it's, to be philosophical, like you were saying, that there's a principle that every action is done, that love is at the, is at the root of every action. And that if it's a bad result, it's often because it's covered up with ignorance. So when properties are maintained and they get a bad result, plants don't look good, they're not healthy, it's damaging. At the root of it probably is a good intention, but there's ignorance. And they might, might not be the right tool, the right approach, the right time of year. So that's where we hope this podcast and other resources will fill in for you. Of course, we'll include as many resources as we can in the show notes. We may go into further detail on specific species as our podcast progresses. We've certainly touched on boxwood and and a certain type of, of fruit tree. Hopefully this will provide a starting place to get acquainted with the plants in your landscape in this way that allows you to understand what is necessary and what is entailed in kind of like cutting into these organisms. Of course, they don't, as, they, as the authors point out in that paper and the ethical considerations, you know, we don't suppose they feel pain in the same way we do, but they certainly react to the actions that we take when we mm-hmm. do something like pruning. They have their own plant awareness, so to speak, that something mm-hmm. has happened and there needs to be a reaction as a result. Right. So anticipating that reaction you can get great results and that like the plant's dormant. You can 
perform certain types of pruning, then its reaction is going to be very predictable. And the result can be very predictable. When someone hires a professional, they want something to be predictable. And that's actually been a big benefit of your knowledge because we're able to assess the landscape, make, I don't want to say drastic, but in some cases, renovation pruning especially can be a little bit alarming if, you have, if you're not prepared for the degree to which a plant will be pruned. But there is this almost certainty that the plant will then behave in a certain way and in a way that is ultimately our hope is beneficial to the plant, that it's healthier, it's thriving, and then aesthetically it looks better. Right. That there might be a like weighing the pros and cons, the cost. There may be a cost to the plant. It might go in, they might experience some shock, but with maybe their supplemental irrigation, supplemental fertilizing, like when there's renovation pruning, when something's overgrown and it's done at a time of year where maybe the plant is dormant, it can really minimize the stress. And it basically, it's not harmful to the plant. It might experience some stress. And then its long term goal is that it'll be on the right track. It'll be the right size or, or any defects will be removed. And then as long as it's continually maintained with some oversight, sometimes it's a drastic step would never have to be taken again, as long as it's, there's oversight. So my relationship with plants began largely, you know, I grew up in a gardening family, but I was not the gardener in that family. <laughs> and so joining the business and getting out on some of these properties with you, I've had an opportunity to get up close and personal with plants. And in my experience, it does not take terribly long to get comfortable with some of this work. That the thought mm-hmm. of cutting into a plant might seem, if one makes a mistake, it's, ir- it's irreparable. And of course, I was training with you but then ultimately going out to the properties of paying customers. And, you know, I had to make sure I was doing the right, <laughs> the right cut at the right. right time. And yet there is, there's a real feel to it. There is, because it's this hands-on process, you get almost a kinesthetic learning experience and you're able to really feel the plant, feel where it's dense. As you, I'm sure we'll talk about as we get further into the episode, I can see poor pruning now <laughs> everywhere right. we go. <laughs> you know, and that's like a component, actually. The type of tool you use, if it's a chain, so almost the more powerful the tool is, often the less feedback you get. If you're drawing with a pencil, you know, uh, Lori Olin, who's like a legendary landscape architect out of Philadelphia, he often talks about you know, when you're drawing, there's instant feedback with a pencil that you feel where, I need, where you need to put more pressure or, or lighten up to get the effect. And so with hand tools, hand saws, hand pruners. There's a lot of feedback. And there's feedback with a chainsaw. It's a coarser tool. And so you get coarser results. And so gas trimmers, electrical trimmers for hedges and other plants, it's coarser. The results, to get a fine result, it's definitely possible. It takes more nuance, actually, than the hand tools. So you can very quickly do damage. Where, where the hand tools, you have to work, you'd have to work at it to do damage. <laughs> It reminds me of my background as a classical musician and the, you know, the difference that I'm actually trained as a singer, but my friends who are instrumentalists, the difference they express when they're using a really fine instrument as opposed to one that has, you know, it's, as you say, coarser action, coarser tone. Maybe like a Stradivarius. Yeah. So a little bit of overlap there. 
So that's my experience getting into pruning and my sort of initial feedback is still a relative newcomer to the field. The idea that, and it's, you know, it's a part of our name, the, the thought of getting in the landscape, really being a part of it, observing it, and in this case, feeling it can give you that sort of responsive feedback you're talking about. We've mentioned on the podcast for new listeners, your background was as an illustrator. So fine arts background. You know, even before that, when I come to think of like what we do now, some of the pruning is very, it's sculptural, whether it's a tree, a shrub, it could be a 90 foot tree, but, we're, but there's some level of sculpture to create a vista, vista pruning. One of the sort of earliest art classes, it was a family ceramics class when I was probably like three years old. It was the University of Rochester and they, it was the Memorial Art Gallery. And it was called the Creative Workshop. They had all types of art classes. You know, it's still in existence. So ceramics, I mean, for kids, you get to work with this cause and effect. The most simple was like the pinch pot where you're, <laughs> you're pinching clay and, you're, and you more or less make a pot out of it. If I really had to trace what we do now, I think that was like the early beginning. You know, this cause and effect, more or less visualize what you want your goal to be. And then there was always good instruction, and then they let you fail, and they let you make mistakes. I learned a lot throughout my career by cause and effect, trial and error, having good instruction. And certainly that principle of observation, where especially if you're working with a plant, and you're not entirely sure what its behavior will be, as long as you don't do anything too drastic, the plant will tell you. It will respond. If you stop watering it, it will let you know that that is not okay. Not that we want to torture our plants with experimentation, but it, the, the plant is giving you feedback, um, right. as we've mentioned. So how did you then transition from this fine arts background into the pruning specifically? So we know you went into landscape design, and we could think of the easy connection between arts and putting certain plants in certain color arrangements and shapes into the ground. But why did pruning become such an important part of your career? On a basic level, I enjoyed it. So I could, and I, part of my creative, my creativity, which I mean, some people have, some people don't, being able to envision something that's not there, which is just a very basic ability that some people have. I happen to have that. <laughs> and so I could envision what a garden could be that didn't exist. And to me, design, it extends to the pruning. So it's in the vision, it's seamless. So I can see a garden. That might be overgrown. It could have been poorly pruned. Maybe it was neglected. It wasn't pruned at all. And so a hedge is turned into a row of trees. They've gotten like quite large. And then some of the landscape firms I work with did the design and the installation. And so I got to, there was lots of field supervision. And there were projects where the senior landscape architects didn't want to, they didn't want to deal with the overgrown gardens. You know, they were like 30, 40 year veterans, like really, you know, incredibly experienced. And so some of it was just by sort of like dumb luck, like an overgrown apple orchard or some of these formal gardens in Westchester County and in Greenwich, Connecticut and other places. I sort of took it as a, you know, my, like right after graduate school, I, as a challenge, it was my job at the time. And I'm like, how am I going to make this work? You know, to, this is what the person wants. And then I started to see it as an opportunity and I started to suggest it. And then instead of just removing an overgrown garden, there's all these steps. So there was, I had lots of time, more or less, and tremendous amount of, ex, of volume that I experienced. And so I, I learned on the job. 
And you did get some specific training in hand pruning from a special place early on before you went back to school for landscape design. Correct? Oh, right. The Hume's Japanese Stroll Garden. That's a very special place on the North Shore of Long Island, Locust Valley. Mr. Humes was a, he was a diplomat, I think under President Nixon, maybe. And so he was stationed overseas and he and his wife traveled extensively. They visited Japan. They fell in love with the Japanese garden, which there are many styles of Japanese gardens. And they came back to their estate on the North Shore of Long Island, which would have been maybe 40 minutes from New York City, roughly. I believe they had a gardener from Japan came and lived and had built the garden, installed it, maintained it. And so by the time I started working, I started to volunteer there. I was working in Manhattan. I was working in advertising. And it, I found it therapeutic that it was this beautiful oasis. And then I started to work there. And that was sort of the transition from being a, a commercial artist and being in advertising and, and transitioning into landscape architecture school. And So... What are some practical tips that we can share with the listeners about pruning that they might be able to take into their landscapes right away? I know timing is important, tools are important, and then there are certain considerations about what's going on with the plants themselves. I guess the same as a doctor, the mantra for pruning would be do no harm. So we talked about, like, about irrigation. So sometimes doing nothing, there's less damage done from doing nothing than doing the wrong thing. Some of the pruning sort of the checklist to go over would be, what's the goal? Like if it was designed, what's the program? And really for pruning, it's also what's the program? The program might be shade or screening. And so being really clear what the goal is and then assessing, like when, it, when we do trainings, we, do, we train landscape crews around North America. A couple of the points I always make to keep it very simple is where's the sun coming from? So the south side of the plant is going to be fuller the north side's going to be less full. So, I mean, it'd be like having like a bald spot, let's say. You have to be very careful not to take off too much on the north side because it's already, it's not going to be as full. Where's the sun? Then where is it viewed from? So, it's similar to a new garden, you know, for design. So, that really ought to inform the pruning where the south side you might need to prune more vigorously, like if it's a hedge. And so, if it's equally pruned, with mechanical trimmers, you get horrible results because the vigorous side probably is not pruned enough. It probably needs to be thinned. And the north side, you're taking off material where there's probably not enough to begin with. So it could get lopsided. And then where is it viewed from? It's similar when we talked about fencing. So if a plant is growing, let's say it's growing toward the sun, toward the south, maybe from the house, you see it from the side. You're seeing it from like the east or the west. And from the south, the pruning, it might look beautiful. And from where you actually see it from, maybe there's a beautiful patio or living room or, or a roof deck. From that vantage point, it, it might look lopsided. So it's one of my design professors at Rochester Institute of Technology would say, he was a graphic design teacher. He says, as far as design goes, it doesn't have to be right. It has to look right. It's, I mean, math, it has to be right. That's all that matters or engineering. But when it's aesthetics, when you measure to the center of something, it might not actually look like the center. And so whether it's topiary or a hedge or even a big shade tree, to get it to actually look balanced and in scale, it's really using the aesthetic judgment and not so the, the math and the measurement, that's all important, but it's often getting it so it looks right. 
Yeah, we've been in some great gardens that actually rely on powerful sort of optical illusion. So there is a, there's a, a long tradition in landscape design of, of having things that look a certain way from a vantage point. And as you kind of go out into the garden and come upon them, you realize it's not, it does not quite look the way you thought it did. And yet the effect that you're after is correct. So. <laughs> oh, right. Like scale. I mean, in some yeah. of the Japanese gardens, Chinese gardens, there maybe there's a vantage point from a gazebo or a, a building and you're looking out at a bridge or something. And I'm thinking of the French gardens of André Lenotre. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, what's done in some of the Asian gardens, the Japanese, Chinese gardens, and others, of course, is it's not full scale. Mm. So maybe it's three-quarter scale or half scale. So when you get up to the bridge, the railing is maybe it's just above your knee, but from a distance, so it looks like it's further. And so pruning can do that too. It can create more depth. It can make a space feel more shallow. Now, in terms of pruning health, for trees in particular, which have branches, what are some key points that we should know when we look at a tree to know whether it's overgrown or requires sort of structural pruning? Okay, yeah, good question. If the branches are crossing, so that's when they come from the nursery, it could be very full and beautiful. And then once the leaves fall off, or if it's, if it's an evergreen, once you open the tree up, it could be sort of a tangled mess inside. It's good to have air circulation. So there's, without air circulation, you can get funguses, insects, disease. So when a plant grows in the forest, in the wild, it's more or less, it's regulating itself. And that there's competition from other plants and and trees and other animals, you know, so it's, it's experiencing so much competition. So it's sort of defects more or less are suppressed. And so, it's to, so to assess a tree, one of the guidelines is, and this could be when you're buying a tree too, like we've talked about, the, let's say you have a trunk and then the subsequent branches coming off the trunk should be no more than 50% as wide as the trunk. And that would go from a branch to a smaller branch, you know, that same principle subsequently. If they were, so let's say the branch coming off is the same size as, as the trunk, that could be a hazard. And interestingly, in terms of thinking, again, almost ethically about the goals of the plants in our landscape, this idea that a plant should be left alone and never pruned, that's its natural way of growing, is not quite accurate because as these plants evolve, they have competition. There is a a way of pruning things out within, say, a forest or something. It's not, although there are thick (laughs) forests. There is an openness to a certain extent, and there's almost an organic pruning that's happening as trees are competing with each other. So it's actually a pretty natural process. And, and as I understand it, in fact, when you prune, it encourages growth from the area that was just pruned. Is that correct? Do right. you know quite what's going on there? You know, there's all different, which we can do in the show notes, there's all different type of technical terms, but the act of pruning encourages growth. So it's, I mean, like one principle that's pretty universal. Like, like, let's say it's a hedge that you're pruning. So by pruning the top or by thinning it, maybe a better example would be a tree. So a tree has apical dominance. So it's more or less a single trunk and it's, it wants to be tall and, and a tall trunk. If you started to prune the top of that tree, it would lose that. And so it's, it's more or less, it's sending most of the energy to the top of the tree. And once the top is pruned, then 
that the hormone that is is suppressing subsequent growth from the sides, and so the sides are still growing, but not as vigorous. As soon as you prune the top, then that hormone is not suppressed anymore, and then it can become more like a bush. If the goal is a hedge, so there's certain steps to take to create that. With let's say a large tree, a shade tree, the act of pruning could cause horrible results where you're getting all this growth and it's more or less unsustainable and it could break. There is one type of poor pruning technique that I spot a lot these days now that I have learned better. (laughs) And that is the, it just looks sort of like a a vertical cut across a horizontal branch, maybe a couple inches out, maybe even three or four inches, which just doesn't make sense to me. The branch has been cut off. So whatever was going on there has been removed. But there's a bit of there's a bit of branch still left sticking out. And one of the first principles you taught me in terms of pruning was find a junction. Can you talk about that? Oh right. Yeah, great point. So the like the mechanics of it is to prune back to a juncture. So if it was your finger, you'd prune back all the way to the like close to the knuckle, for instance. I mean, of course you wouldn't prune your hand, but so that's called the branch collar. And so at different shrubs, trees, it's and some it's more apparent than others. But it's imagine like if you're wearing a turtleneck where it's there's a branch and then there's tissue very close to where the branch meets the tree or meets a meets a larger branch. So you want to prune it up to that spot where where it's slightly wider. If you remove the branch collar, and then you'd be going all the way back, there's the branch bark ridge. I believe it's called. And so that's that's more or less like a crease where where the branch meets the tree. If you if you remove the branch collar, it's going to take a lot longer to heal. It might not heal. So there's special tissue within the branch collar to heal quickly. And so depending on how big the cut is, it could look like you're leaving too much. And so let's say it's like a two inch you're you're removing like a two inch branch from a maple tree, let's say. And so that that branch collar Maybe that's like a quarter of an inch or so, you know, give or take. But not the four inches that I see stuck out into space. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So if that is left, the branch collar can't do its work. It's not going to callous and then then quickly seal up and seal out any chance of insects and fungus and rot. So that's, it's just, it's like an open wound. And eventually that may rot off and then seal up or not. And we have a video on our YouTube page that actually has you pruning a Japanese maple. So we'll share that in our show notes and to our social media pages. And we we clearly ha- have sort of this philosophy that this maintenance of the landscape is an important component of design. So you design with this in mind, so it's the right tree in the right place, so that it's growing maybe with minimal maintenance, but that that still is a thought. And then obviously we've been asked to come in and help restore landscapes to the original intention of the designer. But this is not a new thought. <laughs> We're not <laughs> the only ones who have ever done this. There's actually a landscape architect that you introduced me to, Beatrix Ferrand. And according to the Cultural Landscape Foundation bio on her, mm-hmm. She was the only founding woman member of the American Society of Landscape Architects back in 1899. And so she was doing work all over the country at some really impressive locations, including like the campus of Princeton. One of the things that you really admire about her and her work is her dedication to this idea of maintenance. 
Right. And I've seen that, and I, I'd like to study, you know, study some of her drawings firsthand from archives, which I believe can be done. So, like, we visited the Princeton campus, and there's dormitories, other buildings. And so she was alive, let's see, it says from 1872 to 1959. So she was working, you know, during that period. Part of her design process is leaving the client with, with this, with an elevation, more or less. So it would be the, an elevation of a building. And then one of her real innovations was, I mean, there are plants that are used for espalier, apple trees, pear trees, like we've talked about. So she had the vision that the use of plant material with proper pruning, there's incredible like you see in European gardens, Japanese gardens, you, the plants, if they're started, when you start pruning them from a young age, you can do incredible things. And so she would have illustrations that would illustrate a witch hazel that is grown flat against a building and they would have, that would flower in the winter when the students you know, are, are living there, there'd be fall color, getting very granular with how to prune this specific plant, this witch hazel on this building, when to do it, how to do it, how for that plant to develop. Because it's often, whether it's our designs or other, des- you know, other great designers of the world, there can be a significant development period where it can be many years, even you know, a decade for, for a garden really to reach, to hit its stride. So there's quite careful guiding of the plants and, and to be patient too. So we certainly use a hands-on approach in our practice and advocate a hands-on approach because again there's this feedback what are some of the tools one might need to use we may not mention a specific brand by name but we certainly welcome questions and feedback on our social media if you're curious about specific brands that we use in our practice but what are what are the tool types that you use and and of course if a chainsaw is necessary for a large branch or something that's certainly practical right i mean there's like using like the right tool like the same, like right plant in the right place, the right tool too. Like one concept is what's called a bypass pruner. Uh, so there's anvil pruners, which I would discourage use of those. So that's more or less what a blade comes down onto like a plate. It meets like, it cuts, but, it, the, but the final action is more or less crushing that branch or twig. So I advocate the use of bypass pruners where it's, there's a small plate and then the blade goes past that. And so it's a, it's a clean cut. And so clean cuts are just like if, like if you have a wound on your body, a clean cut heals faster than a, if it was something was torn. And so certainly very sharp and always sanitized. Right. Where you can use isopropyl alcohol, you can use a, a, kitchen, a kitchen disinfectant spray. So bypass pruners. Having, I like wearing a tool belt that can hold multiple tools. So when you're working, there's uh, folding hand saws. I like those. And then always having them sharp. They come with replacement blades. So the having things really in like their peak performance all the time. And so sometimes it's replacing something. And so it'd be a handsaw, a folding handsaw. There's larger handsaws, which you can wear on your belt too. And then even larger ones. You know, I like using like a dolly. So you have having all the tools with you, just like an artist, you'd have all your paints laid out or your pastels. So when you want to use the tool, it's ready. That's, that's very important. There are shears for hedge trimmers, having those very sharp, and they come in different lengths. There's extension pruners, so it's more or less the same as hand pruners, but on a very long pole. And so what those can do is to make a very precise cut, a bypass cut. Maybe there's, let's say, like a beach hedge. It's quite hard to reach. Having the right tool, and when, whether it's our own 
you know, employees or whether we're training, it could be, we might be training a crew at a, at a university or an estate, or it could be a, a large landscape maintenance company. And so explaining, we often send them a tool list, actually. These are, the, these are tools that we have had good success with, having them in really, really top shape. So it's protecting them, not letting them they get rusty. So like, like a real respect and reverence for the tool and that you're only as good as a tool, knowing which tool is appropriate. And then it, it's often trying it. You know, it's trying the hand pruners and then being like, ooh, that's the hand pruners. You have a lot of control and you get very precise cuts. But there's feedback, just like with that pencil. There's feedback. Oh, I this is, I can't make this cut. It's too big. And then then the handsaw. And then there's also pole saws and pole loppers, so you can reach. When there's orchard ladders, there's mechanized lifts to really get up high. <laughs> well, now we're getting really fancy. <laughs> I know you uh, <laughs> you you like the the landscape toys. Um, <laughs> if, if budget is no object, and you really want to get into it, that's great. And also, we're not certainly not sponsored by anyone, but at this point. But if you want some some great tool eye candy, there mm-hmm. is, and and many some of our listeners may know of of him already. Jake Hobson in England has a company, Milwaukee, and so uh, if you want to follow his Twitter, there's again beautiful mm-hmm. <laughs> tool eye candy, great tips on pruning, and that's at n i w a k i Jake. J-A-K-E. So Nwaki Jake on Twitter, and we follow for fun. So what are some of the most important cuts that we should think of in terms of our first pruning exercise if we're getting out there for the first time? Well, see, we talked about cutting to the branch collar so you don't leave a big stump, but you don't remove too much. The three-cut method, which we'll, we'll cite, of course, so that's a branch that's well, you could cut with your hand pruners. Maybe that would be a, a branch that's the size of your thumb, roughly, where you could hold it with one hand and cut it. So you, the three-cut method is for larger branches, whether it's a handsaw, a chainsaw. And so what that means is the last cut is at the branch collar. And so if you made the cut, if you made just one cut and it's a larger branch, it could tear. And then that would, it would damage the tree and it would take a long time to heal. It might never heal. So the three-cut method is working your way out the branch, and it's somewhat proportionate to the size of it. Let's say it's 6 inches, 12 inches, depending how big the cut is away from where the branch collar would be. So you're making a cut, let's say that's, say, 12 inches from the tree, and that's an undercut. So you're cutting on the underside of the branch, and then you're making your second cut, number two, further away from that, so maybe like about an inch or so. And so and you're making that cut from the top like, like, like you normally would. So what would happen, you're cutting and all the weight is further out and it's going gonna, it's gonna to break. It might start to rip, but that undercut, that second cut will stop the rip. And then what will be left will be a pretty modest stump, let's say like 12 inches. And so that you can hold in one hand and then make that, that final third cut, that number three cut at the branch collar. And that's why you're ensuring that that there's no tearing. Right. So that's if you're doing real tree pruning mm-hmm. and getting into kind of larger sizes. We talk a lot about time on this show. We're, we're always referencing where we are in the world. And often that means certain seasons are coming to, to pass. Uh, how does timing season affect our pruning? Oh, the time of year 
on the one hand, uh, light pruning can be done almost any time of year, depending on the plant. But to do larger cuts where there's going to be a wound that will take time to heal. Like when you're shearing boxwood, it still makes a wound, but it's very small. And even that timing actually does matter too. But so the time of year, if you're going to be doing a significant cut where it's, let's say the wound is going to be an inch or two or three or four, that's better to do in the, during the dormant season. When the plant's not growing, funguses are not as active or not active at all. Insects are not active. So you still want to use sanitized tools and all that. So the larger cuts could be done during the dormant season. That's the safest. The time to, to avoid, so the, in the spring, some pruning could be done. Uh, the safest, the dormant season is more or less right before it starts to grow. So the chance of the winter, the cold season is over more or less, but it's not started to grow yet. So the period like where the, the wound is exposed would be a short period of time, and then it'll start to heal. The time to avoid would be before the cool season, if you're making larger cuts. And so what would happen if you made, let's say, a larger cut and there were still some months before it, it would cool down for winter, the plant could start growing again. And then that new growth wouldn't have a chance to harden off before winter. And then they could get frostburn or die back. And if you have new growth coming out during the, so you've done some shearing and some new growth is appearing where you've made cuts, but it's the height of summer you in you want it to look tidy, can you clean things up a little bit when it gets hot or do you put the plant at risk? You have to tolerate a little bit of shagginess in your plants if you want them to be healthy. If it's a smaller cut that you could do with hand pruners or loppers, then the summer, it, it's fine to tidy it up usually depending in their species, like we mentioned, oak wilt. So there's some species to be aware of that you don't want to prune during the growing season. Great. So we'll link to as much as we can in the show notes in terms of things that we might be helpful. Of course, this is one of our longer episodes and we have not even begun to talk about deadheading roses or <laughs> any of the other iterations of pruning that you might come up with. And certainly one could do a whole episode on topiary specifically, which is we alluded to that at the top of the show. But if you would like to give us feedback, you can always email us at connect at kinggardeninc.com. You can always go to our website, kinggardeninc.com forward slash in hyphen the hyphen landscape. That actually includes direct links to the podcast carriers that you, if you're looking for the show on your favorite streaming app, you can probably find it there. You can always find links there for our Facebook page in the landscape, our Twitter feed in underscore landscape. And our Instagram, which is uh, acquainted with our affiliated with our design Instagram, King Garden Inc. But you can certainly see a lot of pictures that relate to the topics that we discuss here. So mm -hmm. it's a lot of social media. What we really want more than anything is the opportunity to hear from you, to share um, right. your feedback. Questions, feedback. Corrections, questions, your photos of your gorgeous gardens and how you've used any of our tips, if any, in the landscape. So do feel free to connect to us there. This is all about building community for love of landscape. And we're, we're here and listening as we are grateful that you are as well. So that's it for us today. Do you have any last thoughts? Well, I guess to observe good pruning, uh, botanic gardens and other institutions throughout the world often practice beautiful pruning. There's often classes 
many institutions here in, in the United States, the land-grant universities throughout North America, throughout the United States. They have great pruning classes. There is good information available. And then more or less education for me begets more education. So I, I learn a little and then I want to learn more. And then sharing that with your network, I find that that's also great. Like we've shared in our company, there's a training program and people get excited about it and they see the results and it's, it leads to beautiful gardens at work. So we hope after you listen to us, you are able to get out in the landscape. Thank you for listening. Thank you.